Good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. It's fun to see some faces I don't recognize here this morning. Some of you are like, yeah, we, we know you. It's been a busy weekend here. Uh, yesterday morning uh, began with what's called an interest meeting for Foster the City. And um, I just want to celebrate. We had 10 households um, RSVP for this meeting. We do these all over the Bay Area. Uh, yesterday morning, we had people who had driven from Berkeley. Um, we had people that had driven from, uh, from Fremont and, um, and elsewhere in the East Bay, along with here in South San Jose. Here's the astounding part. Uh, we are seeing God move some, in some incredible ways in Southern California and in Northern Nevada to raise up people for foster care, to become foster families. And uh, it's been really, really fun as the home county where this all started and one of the home churches where this all started to see like this early movement of God in these new areas. But truth be told, uh, our prayer in the South Bay has said, God, let us have a second or third or fourth wave of this. Yesterday morning, 10 households RSVP'd, 10 households showed up, eight households checked, I want to take the next step to becoming a foster family. So isn't that amazing? That went on in this room yesterday morning. Um, so praise God for that. We just, we celebrate the, the movement of that. And special thanks to Jamie Pitigoy aaron who's our new advocate here at this church. Later on in the afternoon, uh, we celebrated and mourned um, Linda Conrad. And that's what these amazing flowers are. I just took a couple pictures from the back of the church this morning, and I thought, you know, faith continues after the funeral. And uh, I just want to thank you, church. Um, Kent and Linda's community group really rallied around them and showed extensive love for just caring for that. Um, and thanks to the team that just that put this all together. Uh, I don't think there was an empty seat in here yesterday. It was blazing hot despite our air conditioning. Um, and we celebrated and mourned Linda really, really well. And um, so just want to let you know the kinds of things that go on in a church family. And uh, as we show up, there are always people on the mountaintop. There are people walking through the valley. And there's people in the very boring middle, right, driving through Bakersfield on I-5. That's what, that's what we're doing here. So there's, there's that every single Sunday that, that goes on. Um, I want to highlight the cross this morning. Uh, it's not lit up. And so Andres is going to light it up right now. It's lit up almost every Sunday, but you don't see it if you show up week after week. Because after you see something over and over and over again, you tend not to see something. Uh, but the cross speaks into foster care. The cross gives us hope in the midst of the hard. Um, the cross speaks into our funerals. And the cross speaks into what we're about to talk about this morning, which is that Christians are promised to suffer. Christians are promised to be persecuted. Thank you, Andres, for that. Um, let me show you a verse that, uh, that as we spill out into uh, the sort of halftime between services, between our English and Spanish services, uh, that, that we get to practice this in tangible ways. 1 Peter 4, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Real love starts with God. It flows out into our homes. It spills out into our church family. And then it overflows into the neighborhood. Church, every single week you have an opportunity to express obedience to this verse. 
by sticking around after service. Actually, it's just part two of the service. Part one is sermon and song and prayer. Part two is fellowship and conversation and meeting people. One of the things I loved about Linda and Kent is they were very faithful at part one. And when we started part two, uh, they were very faithful. My 11-year-old Eli, I went home and mentioned that Linda had passed away and they couldn't put a face to a name. But when Eli saw Linda's picture, he goes, oh, her? And he was very sad because Linda always said hi to Eli every Sunday. So church, this, this after time um, is really part two of our, of our worship services. So I would just encourage you with that. Think about this. NBC is on a mission to turn strangers into neighbors and by God's grace, neighbors into family. We can't possibly awaken the spiritual dead. We can't make people into God's family. God can do that alone. But welcoming strangers into neighbors may be you sticking around and just introducing yourself, which for some of you is going outside of your sort of normal self. I get that. But that's what it's there for. I love Gary Larson. He's the creator of Farside. Um, and I put this up to say this, that it, when, when it comes to pain, you can run, but you can't hide. Right? Pain is universal to the human experience. If you're not in pain today, you'll be in pain soon. It's just part of life. It's part of living in a fallen world. To be human is to experience pain. But to be a Christian is to be persecuted. To be human is to suffer pain. To be a Christian is to be persecuted. Christ says that to be his follower is to experience this unique kind of pain. It comes in the form of persecution. It's, it's pain that comes at you because you wear his name. In fact, I'd say it this way. Pain is yours because you are his. There's a unique kind of pain that is yours because you are his. I told you the cross was going to be monumental in thinking through this morning. You're a follower of Jesus. If this is where it led him to in this world, he promised how his followers would be treated. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. What? I have overcome the world. He promised this. Your pain and suffering are not random and never wasted. Suffering for and suffering in Christ changes this world's pain forever. We're in part two of a um, kind of a two-part sermon and going back several weeks, three weeks, because last week we all looked and smelled a lot different. We were out camping. Um, really good to see you cleaned up. Nice. And you're like, yeah, you too, pastor. Uh, but it was really fun being out amongst the redwoods. We had our bilingual service. It was an awesome time. But three weeks ago, we talked about this central truth. Don't be fooled by foolish people. Avoid them. And sort of the overarching central truth for this two-part series uh, of this is don't admire godly people from afar. Join them. Here's the caution this morning from the text. Joining godly people is risky. If you worship at the idol of comfort, you will be deeply disturbed by today's message. Think about our series title. It's called 4,000 Hours to Live. That's how you would read that crazy slide and what that all means. Life is short. We want to live it well. Why does Paul have 4,000 hours to live? That's roughly three months. It's because he names the name of Jesus. What would get him out of prison? What would keep his head attached to his body? Denying Jesus Christ. He's free. He's out. He's comfortable. 
What we know is this. These are the last words Paul ever wrote that are, in, that are recorded in the Scripture. He's going to die in about three months because he endured persecution. So before getting to this rough road ahead portion uh, of, our, of our sermon, let me just wrap up these discipleship components. We've been talking about these steps of discipleship. And I said last week that discipleship is not three, three easy steps, and then it's all up and to the right. In fact, this passage uh, reminds us of an experience we experience as Christians, which is this. Living a life that's following Jesus is like live action shoots and ladders, right? You're climbing, you're climbing, you're cruising, and then boop, you go down. You're climbing some more, you go down a little bit. You're climbing, you feel like you're way at the top, you go the long side all the way down. It's live action shoots and ladders. You're going forward and backward all the time. If ever there was a passage that shines the embarrassing light of truth on health, wealth, prosperity, false teachers, it's this passage. There's a lot of nonsense being preached in the world today. Paul says, look at my words, my attitudes, my action. You following them is the path to God. And the path to God includes much difficulty. Persecution, in fact. Here's the huge danger in false teachers. There are some that are very, very easy to spot. The ones that I think are not as easy to spot are not the, those that teach biblical truth or even talk about the gospel. Those are everywhere. Here's the danger. The danger lies in what they don't teach. The danger lies in the fact that they don't teach the whole Bible. They don't teach the whole gospel. They stop short of it. Don't settle for less than the whole gospel. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And all the church says, amen to that. You have not because you've asked not. Ask God and he will give it to you as he's promised. You must have faith. All you need is faith like a mustard seed. Church, everything I just said is gloriously true and incomplete. If the only message you hear over and over and over leaves you feeling pumped up and elevated in yourself, you are worshiping a God in your own making. Does God ever counter you? Does the scriptures ever counter you? I hope so. Because church, your sin and your flawed and your marred and your in process. And so am I. Paul, like the master he's following, assures persecution, not because of these half-truths, but because the full gospel is this. You must believe and repent. You must be born again out of the deadness of your sin and your rebellion and walk as children of the light. Your salvation does not rest on anything you do, but is completely dependent on God alone. Salvation is from him alone, from first to last. Gladly receive and trust in the whole gospel. Think about Satan's tactic with Jesus in the wilderness. What was it? Half-truth. Biblical half-truth. Jesus shows us in the wilderness, when Satan comes and attacks him with the Bible, 
How to defend ourselves with the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. You know how I would summarize it? Keep reading. Satan will only sing part of the gospel over you. Keep reading. Jesus shows us that. All right. Dave's rambunctious today too. What was the word you used, Rob? Was that it? All right, here we go. Let me... Let me finish these steps, and then you see this little rough road ahead down here. That's, that's the bulk of this morning. But I didn't get to the rest of these. You, however, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, if you follow along, and I hope you will, so you make sure I'm not making this stuff up. Paul writing to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. And then we get to my patience. Why is patience on this list? Because it's a long staircase, isn't it? The reality of this staircase, and I love this picture. If you look at it closely, do you see that there's stairs behind it? It's not like we do 12 neat steps and it's over. I've done the 12 steps of discipleship. It's that we do the 12 steps and we get up there and there's there's more steps. I think these are a pretty good 12 to just keep on repeat. How many months are there in a year? Last I checked, 12. Grab one of these a month and dive deep on it. Walk through each of these each month. We need patience because it's a long staircase. The Great Wall of China is the longest staircase I've ever walked on. You can see it from outer space. I've never been to outer space, but I've been to China, and I've seen this thing up close and personal. Here's what's amazing about it. When you're there, you actually see it snaking along into the mountains. When you're there, it's like the Grand Canyon. Pictures don't do it justice. When you're there, it's mind-boggling how big this thing is to consider this thing being made. Any long climb requires patience. There's simply no shortcut or elevator. There's another reason, though, that this particular staircase requires patience, and that's because the steps are completely uneven. I want to show you this picture of uh, of Cassie. There she is. Notice that Cassie is standing on a two-brick step, but the man behind her, do you see how high he's stepping up? That's three steps high. All the way up this thing, you're stepping three steps, two steps, one step, one step, two step, two step, two step, one step, three step. You have to really pay attention. There's no boring repetition to this walk. As you climb, you have to keep from stumbling. And if you start to stumble, you better catch yourself quick because those things are sharp. I look at discipleship in this same way. It's not 12 neat steps. Checked off, we're done. Those of you engineers, I grew up in an engineer family. Man, we needed everything to check off and fit neatly and be tight and needy. Nonsense. That's not how the Christian life is. You know, rest is required when you're climbing a long staircase. It's good to stop and enjoy the view. It's good to stop and strike a pose. So good job, Cassie. A plus on that. I've been saying with each of these sort of a person that comes to my mind that I've been celebrating with each of these. Get around patient people. They will help you get in sync with the time of God, the pace of God. I want to celebrate my dad. There was no more patient person on the planet than I know than my dad. 
My dad's favorite thing in life outside of God and his family and maybe engineering was peanut butter. And you know, there's nothing fast about peanut butter, is there? Peanut butter spreads slow, it goes down slow, it requires patience. Maybe that's why peanut butter was my dad's favorite. If people had to describe my dad in three words, I almost guarantee you, anyone who knew him would include patience in that description. Proverbs 14, 29, a patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. On any given day, my dad was probably the most patient person in the room. Do you know how well this served our family? Growing up, he mixed patience with grace. And for me, it provided a lot of room to breathe, a lot of room to make mistakes. Served me and my brothers really well. Ephesians 4, 2 says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Parents, and maybe dads specifically, or dads-to-be, I plead with you in the name of Christ, be patient. Some of you are impatient men, and it's hurting your family. Get around patient men. Learn from them. He goes on to talk about my love. The next step is love. And that love in this text is the word agape. It's the highest and most complete form of love. It's the love God has for people. It's not sentimental or sappy. It's a choice. It's to want and then act on what is best for other people. Paul's ministry can be measured more by his love than his learning. Not his ministry, his maturity. Paul's maturity can be measured more by his love than by his learning. Church, hear me really clearly. We're going to open the Bible every week here. We're going to dive deep. We're going to learn it. But we're not learning it just to learn it. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. We're not teaching the children scripture so they can learn a bunch of scripture. We want our children to live well. We want them to learn the paths of God, the way of God. And the way of God is found in the word of God. So studying the word, gaining knowledge, that's a means to an end. You stop short at learning and you're at the class of demons and Pharisees. Go read the gospels tonight. That's not a good team to be on. That's the spoiler alert. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. It's often called the love chapter. Church, it's better that you love one person than memorize 13 verses of the love chapter. Amen? We've got to do this. In fact, as you do this, there's nothing that drives me back to the word more and hungry for the word more than trying to live out what the Bible's saying to do. As it says, go and love someone, I'm like, sweet, I'll go love people. You go love people, it's hard. You go love people, you come across something in Scripture, you go, wow, the very thing I thought was loving is I'm told not to do that towards people. That's unloving. I need to reorient my sinful brain and get it in tune with what God says. So again, get around loving people and do the things they do. Stop doing the things they're not doing. This is how we grow up in the Lord. I want to highlight Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller was a professor of mine at San Jose Christian College, one of my favorite professors by far. Years later, he became my pastor. He was the one that hired me to go do youth ministry at Valley Church. 
So knowledge wasn't a problem for Glenn. He was a professor at a Christian college. But what stands out to me with Glenn above all else is his love for people. He just aimed at love over and over and over and over again, year after year, now decade after decade. Glenn is a shepherd of a church who loves people. It's not only evident, but it's contagious. Next step on here is my steadfastness. I simply refer to our series title again. Who do I point to for steadfastness as an example? Paul. All I had to do was push one button. I recant. Just kidding. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm not his. Let me out. Done. Stop preaching. Okay, we're good. You're out. He didn't do it. Walk with steadfast people, church. See them up close in the midst of persecution. Borrow courage from them. All right. Those are the steps. Here's what I want to get to now. If you start to squint, you go, does that say persecutions and sufferings? That can't be right. Why would a good and loving God not want me comfortable? That is a pervasive question, by the way. God wants me comfortable in my marriage. God wants me comfortable where I live. And if I'm not, I'm going to move. By the way, if you're considering leaving the Bay Area, I will challenge you. If you are leaving because the heat and the political climate and the things going on here are not to your liking, you are moving to a land of sinful people. Yes, they live in Idaho. Yes, they live in Tennessee and Colorado and even Texas. So be careful why you're leaving. We're going to get to that response in a second. Some of you are like, but pastor, hang on. Look at verse 12 with me. Would you read it and let this sink in? Uh, all of scripture is equally inspired. Not all of scripture, I believe, is equally helpful. Has anyone memorized any of the genealogies? Well, that's Old Testament. No, it's not. Go read Matthew. Matthew starts with a crazy long genealogy. I've never memorized one. Ever. Is it inspired? Absolutely. Is it actually an important part of pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah and come from this lineage? Totally. What we're getting to right now is a passage you ought to commit to memory. You ought to ruminate on this, chew on it, think on it, come back to over and over again. It is giving you clarity into what you're seeing in your life. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Two things here. Christians will suffer and people will go from bad to worse. Let me get to the idea that Christians will suffer. I said this last week that Jesus didn't just do right, he suffered wrong. Jesus didn't just do right, he suffered wrong. What I mean by that, as in the wrong of others imposed on him, he suffered the wrong treatment of other people. So if Jesus did right and suffered wrong, and we're called Christians, Christ ones, little Christ followers, go and do likewise. Christian, go and do right and suffer wrong. This is your calling in Christ Jesus. If you've been around here a while, you've heard me say this. I say it regularly. Do not go looking for trouble, 
Christian, do not go looking for trouble. Follow Jesus Christ with all you are. Trouble will find you. I promise you. Here's what this corrects against. There are some of you who are always looking for a fight. Fight, flight, or freeze, your fight all the way. Communication style, it's fight to win. Some of the, some of the husbands and wives are so wanting to urge, the, like, like resist the nudge to like, eh, that's you. You know what? We need fighters. We got some fighters in our home. They make good lawyers. They make good evangelists. But this prevents those of you always looking for a fight, somehow getting engaged in it to chill out. Scriptures say, live at peace with all people so far as it depends on you. Seek after a, a quiet life. Do not go looking for trouble. But you know what? This also corrects those who are always avoiding a fight. I don't think it's quite this way, but there's probably half of you that kind of lean towards looking for a fight, and half of you, they're like, I'm looking to avoid a fight. Almost at all costs. Certainly at the cost of discomfort, and maybe at the cost of absolute truth being trampled. We have this long-time metaphor here at this church. It's the play button. And the words make disciples at the top are Jesus' last words to his disciples. It's our commission as, as Christians. The words in red because Jesus spoke them. As we make disciples, we talk about worship, community, and share. Worship is being in relationship with God. It all starts there. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't have us born again and leave us on the street corner. He puts us in a family. So we're a part of a church. We belong to a church. We don't just attend a church. But worship and community is not all there is. Worship and community have a point. God has us in relationship with himself and with one another to share. Up until today, this metaphor, this little triangle, this helpful way of visualizing sort of the Christian process, what it means to be and then make disciples, share has meant this. Live a life of generosity, as in share your goods. If God's given you stuff, talent, time, energy, give it away. Share. So it's live a life of generosity, share your goods, and it's living a life of witness, share the ultimate good, which is the gospel. So share, quite, quite simply around here, share, share means live generously and be a witness. Evangelize. In the wisdom of God, 16 years into this church, we're adding a layer to the word share today. And it's because I read the Bible and I'm growing and learning. Here's what I want share to come to mind. I want you to think about living a life of generosity. I, think you do, I want you to think about evangelism. And I want you to think about sharing in Christ's suffering. All disciples, all disciples will be persecuted. Go do a word study on the word all. You know what it means? You guessed it. Everyone. <laughs> all. So it's fitting, isn't it? A life of worship, a life of community, results in sharing in Christ's suffering. Jesus promised this because he loves us. He told us about it ahead of time. Let me give you just a couple of scriptures. Part of my role as your pastor is to prepare you for this. 
1 Peter 4, but rejoice in so far as you share, in, share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen to this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I didn't have to dig hard for these, did I, church? This is woven through the Gospels, Jesus showing us. I'm in the book of Acts right now. This is all through the book of Acts. Then in the letters, looking back on the life of Christ and telling us what to expect, it's all over the place because it's what they were talking about. It was their daily headlines. You know the word repent means turn around? So repent simply means turn around. I just repented. Repent means turn around. If you are not walking with Christ, you're the Lord of your own life, you're following the God of this age, and you repent. Let me point towards the cross. That feels better. I'm walking away from the cross. I repent. I yield to my my Lord and Savior, Jesus. Here's what it stands to reason, that when I turn around, I am going to begin to bump into people who are walking the other way. It's going to get rough. It's going to get annoying for me and for them. If I open my mouth and say, hey, you're going the wrong way, come with me to life. People are going to talk back and not be so happy about it. If you're walking against the crowd, of course, you'll be bumped into and you'll bump into. What does this look like? Social disapproval, yes. Friction in your family, yes. Complications to your relationships, yes. Complications to your career opportunities, yep. A potential limiting to your financial achievement and growth, quite possibly. And increasingly, this will morph into criminal prosecution. If you are being sued or jailed, not looking for trouble, you're just following Jesus. If you are sued or jailed because of your conviction not to turn your back on Jesus or to continue to speak up, if someone tells you not to speak up, you are in amazing company. Paul, who wrote 2 Timothy, is in jail because of a godless system that is keeping him there. Jesus was killed under authority of those who were going exactly the opposite direction. Let me pose an interesting question. If you have no persecution in your life, I would ask you, why not? Whoever claims to live in him, Jesus must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. If you have no persecution in your life, why not? Let me give this caveat. It may be because this is a season of peace. If it's a season of peace, man, run. 
Run and advance the gospel. Run and advance in all the kingdom work that you're about. Because just like pain, if you're not in pain now, it's coming someday. If you're not being persecuted now, Christian, and you're following Jesus, it's coming. Sooner or later. Let me pose some thoughts. You know who doesn't get bumped? Closeted Christians who never speak up. You remain in a closet, you won't get bumped. You know who else doesn't get bumped? Positive, upbeat Christians who never warn, who never talk about sort of the apparently negative parts of the Scriptures. You know who never gets bumped? False Christians who value self over Christ, my name over Christ's name. They don't get bumped. The people who don't get bumped are those on the broad road that lead to destruction instead of the narrow discipleship way that leads to life. I'd say it this strongly. Christians who never bump into others are going the wrong way. Christians who never bump into others are simply going the wrong way. Again, do not go looking for trouble. You don't need to do that. Look for Jesus. Act on it. Trouble will find you. Abundantly so, according to one of the scriptures that we just read. All right, let me give you something to do about it. There's a long list of what you could do. I'm going to give you just a few thoughts. I like Ralph Waldo Emerson's comment. He says, call on God, but row away from the rocks. Right? Like, don't just play the victim. Help! Row! Man, get after it. That's good advice. It's biblical. In this passage, Paul actually shows the partnership of Paul doing his part and allowing God to do his part. Verse 11 says this, These persecutions that I endured... Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Do you see the partnership? Paul's rowing. He's enduring. The tide's going towards the rocks. He's enduring. But God rescued him out. Man, that's a really beautiful picture of this. Let go and let God. No, pick up the oars and start rowing. Do what you're called to do. Oh, it gives Christians such a bad name sometimes. All right. Let me start with some don'ts. You can jot these down if they're helpful. First of all, don't envy the wicked. When you are being persecuted, do not envy the wicked. That's such a human response, isn't it? Remember, to err is to be human, so watch that response. Job, chapter 21. You want to talk about a guy who went through it? It was Job. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? You ever look around you and say, woe is me? Why are all these godless people, blatantly godless people, succeeding? He goes on for a lot of verses. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. No rod of God is upon them. Skip ahead six verses where he's continuing to call out to God. They say to God... Depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Welcome to the Bay Area. Verse 16. Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? This is Job questioning. Now, God applauds Job in the end, doesn't he? Job endured. 
Isn't it comforting to know that right in the midst of our persecution, God has allowance for us to, to question things like this? How can this be? God, how, how long are the, the godless going to go on prospering? Church, don't, don't envy the wicked. Secondly, don't worry. Isn't it true that worry doesn't help anyways? We all know that. We must not just be completely rational creatures because we know worry doesn't help. It doesn't add a single hour to our day. It doesn't check anything off of our to-do list. Case can be made, it just makes things worse. So not only does it not help, it's sin. Idolatry, quite simply, is trusting in a created thing rather than the creator. Philippians 4, 6, if I could summarize it, it's this. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Turn your worry into prayer. We all know how to meditate. We worry, right? You take your worries, you set your mind on that. Set your mind on the promises of God. Set your mind on what Rob was just talking about. We're singing these truths of the faith. We just sang the Beatitudes. We sang, blessed are we when we're persecuted. So don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. There's a couple of don'ts. Here's some do's for you. I'll go through these pretty quick. Number one is do endure. So just like Paul, keep rowing, keep the faith. We don't be surprised at this. We press on. Number two is suffer well. There's a way to suffer poorly and there's a way to suffer well. We have a sermon series on our website called Turbulence. And it kind of walks you through some different things that, that um, the, the, the metaphor is like a cross-country flight. God's promise, you're going to land back in San Francisco safe and sound. So you leave New York City, you're mid-travel, you're mid-life, things get bumpy. Things get really bumpy. It's more than uncomfortable. It's really, really terrifying. The troubles in this life are temporary. Your eternal life is perfectly safe and sound. That's the picture of that. So suffer well. Number three is trust. The persecution you're experiencing, the pain you're experiencing, is not irrational chance. By the way, if you're a secular humanist, you have to lean on that. That this is a rational chance. Things are just happening. If we are nothing more than moist robots responding to chemical things and impulses going on, there cannot be reason or rhyme or design to this. We've argued design out of the universe, haven't we? But we know better. Your pain is seen and limited and purposeful. You suffer for Christ. You suffer in Christ. Rejoice. It's producing something in you far more valuable than you can imagine. The rebel says in their heart, evil doesn't make sense to me, so it simply does not make sense. You've heard this. You may have thought it. Pride has blinded the person to the role they play in the universe. They've taken the almighty God and creator of every single thing they see, and they've brought him down to the tiny little pixel on the screen that they see. And they see, I can't see anything in here, therefore, nothing must be good coming from this. That's what it is to think that way. The Christian, unlike the rebel, prays, God, may I learn to make good out of what I am given, rather than only making sense of it. 
What if we didn't try to make sense of stuff all the time? We can try. I think those are good things to do. But there are things we simply won't know this side of eternity. So instead of trying to make sense of it, God, help me make good of it. You have a plan and a purpose and a limit to this pain. I trust you in that. I cooperate with you in that. Here's another one. I don't even know what number one. Maybe four. How about four? Stand or flee. When you are persecuted, Christian, stand firm or flee. Well, that's helpful. Which one am I supposed to do? I don't know. I couldn't possibly know. I don't go with you everywhere. That's a relief to both of us. <laughs> like, I couldn't stand this guy for much more than an hour a week. I don't know. I don't know this next week. I don't know if I should stand or flee in the situations that will be presented to me. But I know the God who does. So in the moment, I do that. Do you know where we see precedence for this? Again, read your Bible. Jeremiah both stood and fleed. King David, David of the Psalms, both stood firm and he fled. Not fleed, fled. I got, I got it. My wife's such a word person. She's like, oh, that hurt. <laughs> Where there are many words, there's sin. So I apologize. Fled. Um, Paul, did he stand firm? Yes. Did he flee? Yes. Jesus Christ, did he stand firm? Yes. Did he flee? Yes. He, he moved on when it wasn't his time. So Christian, stand or flee? Those are both valid options. Back to moving out of the area. Do you see how stand or flee may, may be different for each person here? So if you're just going with prevailing wis- wisdom, I've got to get out of the heat, not the literal heat of last week, the heat of, of political climate. It's so hard to be a Christian here. It's so hard to nurture my faith here. So you're going to take the gospel witness of you and leave. Is that what you're telling me? And go to where? Like, where, where are you going to go that this Christian utopia exists where love, peace, and happiness are going to reign from the scriptures? That, that doesn't exist. So stand or flee, but do it before God. Wrestle with God on that. I love this one. This is from C.S. Lewis. It's so great. Convert your neighbor. What do you do with persecution? You convert your neighbor. Um, this was his advice to an essay on whether or not uh, someone had written in, should we form a Christian political party? C.S. Lewis said, absolutely not. And he gives some great reasons that I agree with as to why not. He said, the most practical thing you can do is convert your neighbor. Does Paul take persecutors and turn them into persecuted? Saul to Paul. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read the book of Acts chapter 8 and 9. He takes the persecutor, Saul... And he turns him into Paul the persecuted. He was converted and things changed. All right, so Christians will suffer. People will go from bad to worse. Let me give you a story that illustrates both the idea that Christians will suffer and evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse in the last days, okay? This comes straight from our current headlines and is very, very close to home for me. I want you to suppose for a moment that Christians on a local high school campus decided to use the school club as a means of 
expressing and promoting their strongly held Christian beliefs. Not content to only start their own club, these Christians decide to go and join the LGBT plus club. Not content with just joining that club, these Christians decide to say, we want, we demand to be leaders of the LGBT plus club. Not content to just do that, these Christians block the path and harass students wanting to enter the club, and they get teachers to back their position. Now, WWJD, some of you know this reference. What would Jesus do? Is this the Jesus way? No. I don't think so. Don't go looking for trouble. It will find you. Let me tell you, church, this is exactly what happened at Pioneer High School three years ago. However, the roles were reversed. Students who identify as LGBT plus did all of those things I just expressed to the Christian club at Pioneer High School. That's three years ago. I talked with Tegan this morning. She was a sophomore at the time. I said, Tegan, I'm about to mention some of the stories. I just want to make sure I'm remembering it correctly. Can you help me? Because you lived through it. So we talked and kind of got clarity on some things. The Christian club at Pioneer was actively opposed, not only by LGBT plus students, who did exactly what I described, but also by some particularly oppositional teachers who led the charge in not allowing Christian club to continue, who helped create lines of students that were harassing people from entering the classroom where the club was being held, so much so that law enforcement had to be present. Tegan told me one time she tried to go to club and passed a group of angry, harassing students that told her she was hated by them and couldn't get into club because law enforcement had closed it after a certain time because some students were trying to forcefully get in and shut down what was going on inside. And... This is where we see the dark forces behind government systems, the dark forces behind authority figures, the dark forces behind student school unions, the dark forces behind even individuals. Do you know what was created directly in opposition to the Christian club? It's called the Satanic Club. Tegan brought home a flyer with a pentagram on it. Come join the Satanic Club. This was done to say, if Christians get to spout their stuff, we're going to start this. Pioneer High School, 2019. One and a half weeks ago, on August 29th, the LA Times reported this headline. There was a legal ruling against the actions of students and faculty at Pioneer High School. The United States Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ordered that the club be reinstated as an official student group for this coming school year at Pioneer High School. Evidence showed the school district had not applied its anti-discrimination policy equally to all student groups and had engaged in selective enforcement that unfairly targeted the fellowship of Christian athletes for its religious beliefs while letting secular groups that violated the policy go unpunished. 
you want to know what specifically was targeted as the deep offense of fellowship Christian athletes? It was that they asked their students, their leaders of the club, to adhere to a moral standard. And amongst other things, this is the thing that was pulled out and targeted. The sexual purity statement that according to court records reads as follows. The Bible teaches that the appropriate place for sexual expression is in the context of a marriage relationship. The biblical description of marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment. That's what got everyone so enraged at Pioneer High School. In the last days, people will be deceived and go on deceiving. I read from the article now. The statement angered students and school staff who spoke out against the Cub publicly, filed complaints about it within the school district, and held protests outside the group's meetings. One one teacher was quoted as calling the club's belief, that's one teacher, another describing evangelical Christians as charlatans who who, who perpetuate darkness and ignorance. That's the second teacher. A third teacher who denigrated one of his own students as an idiot for empathizing with fellowship of Christian athletes. The judge in writing the opinion after the ruling, Judge Lee said this, This is not, to put it mildly, neutral treatment of religion. More than a whiff, a stench of animus, hostility against the student's religious belief pervades the Pioneer High School campus. A week and a half ago, this ruling came down. Adults, can I just talk to you for a second? I'll talk to myself for a second. When it is said that it is hard to be a Christian on any campus today in the Bay Area, let's not overlook it. Let's not minimize it. Yeah, it was hard for me too. I grew up at Prospect High School in the 80s. Nothing like this was going on. Students... Students entering middle school, high school, who are in here with us, I applaud your courage. In a huge way, I applaud your courage for living your faith out loud. It is costly, and it is the right thing to do. I assure you, you will never look back on anything you give up for Jesus, ever, and regret it. It'll be the best decision you ever made. I want to stop and pray right now. We have some students here from Santa Teresa High School that are part of a Santa Teresa High School Christian Club. We have a meeting later on today with Rigo, who is the head of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And specifically, we have Sadie and Cassie and Kate and uh, others who are, who are at Pioneer High School. The one that, according to that bastion of conservative ideas, the LA Times <laughs> reports... This idea of hostility that is pervasive on the high school campus. Let's pray. God, I lift up our high school students to you, our middle school students to you. Lord, you warned us of this. Jesus, you called us to follow you. And you told us it would cost us everything. And you weren't kidding. God, I pray for each 
student here in our room. I pray, Lord, that as a church family, we would wrap them and love them. God, that we'd comfort where comfort is there. We'd rebuke where rebuke is needed. God, that we'd encourage and fire up and stand with where that is needed. God, I pray for students and adults alike, children alike, that we would run so hard after you, oblivious to the left and right, that trouble is finding us. Some of it we don't even know is attaching us or trying to get us because we're running so hard and fast over you. And when it finds us, when it captures us, when it imprisons us, God, we're free in you. We don't submit to the laws of man. We submit to the laws of love. We submit to the law of liberty that is found in Jesus Christ. God, would you help us live out that we can rejoice in our suffering? We can rejoice when we're insulted because we name your name because that's exactly how they treated you. It's exactly how they treated your prophets. God, we want to be loving truth-tellers in this world. Amen. Let me say a couple more words, and then we'll sing some songs. Church, rough road ahead. God knows exactly what he's doing. He's never surprised. This is the hope of every single Christian all the time. Providentially, I read Acts 7 yesterday. Stephen, the very first martyr, killed for his faith in the New Testament. Acts chapter 8 Translated by Eugene Peterson, the message. Listen to this. Saul was right there congratulating the killers. This set off a terrific persecution of the church in Jerusalem. The believers were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And Saul just went wild, devastating the church, entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail. Listen to verse 5. Forced to leave home base, the followers of Jesus all became missionaries. Wherever they were scattered, they preached the message about Jesus. Church, God has his hand in the events of Pioneer High School. God has his hand when things are good. Run with the ball when there's open field, for Pete's sake. Hustle, get after it. And when you're sacked, when you're imprisoned, when you're persecuted, when you're shut down, when you're screamed at, when people are trying to physically block you from going into Christian club, rejoice. You're on the right path you're being bumped into. Hi, church family. I wanted to just come back and make this short video to do a little add-on to the sermon this last week. If you watch the YouTube live stream, you'll see the last couple of minutes I come back up at the end of service and had already taken my mic off. And so I just wanted to capture some of the words I was saying there. I just went up and I just said at the end of the message, I don't want people to walk away hearing something I'm not saying. What I am not saying is that the LGBT community is in any way our enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. In fact, Jesus came to set prisoners free. That includes all of us. There's not a person who doesn't need to be set free from sin. And so my admonition is to leave this message with a heart of love. Leave this message with a heart of courage. What did Jesus do when he was opposed? He loved. 
What did Jesus do when he was spit upon and mocked? What did Jesus do when he was misunderstood? Well, Jesus loved them. He didn't back away from the truth. He didn't change his message, but he loved people to the end. So my heart in what I said this morning was certainly for us to just be aware of what's happening right here in our area. It comes with the territory of being Jesus's. If you are his, you will experience persecution. Love you much and pray that you will walk in his grace to be on a mission of love.